Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. It can be found on page 1233 of the Church Bibles. Revelation, chapter 1, beginning at the first verse, page 1233. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tony. Is that, um, that's working, isn't it? Yeah. Well, um, a week or so uh, before Amy and I moved out of our flat in central London to come to Sheffield, a new resident moved into the block. I bumped into her on the stairs, uh, offered to help her with her boxes, and noticed she had a Yorkshire accent. Uh, I mentioned Amy's from Yorkshire too, she's from Ilkley, and uh, subsequently she joined the neighbor's WhatsApp, the new neighbor, turned out her name was Olivia, and then I thought nothing more of it until I realized it was this lady. Do you know who that is? Olivia Blake, our honorable MP for Hallam. What a bizarre coincidence, my local, my new local MP. We kind of tag-teamed in and out of London. Uh, Now, I've got her number stored away because of that WhatsApp. I'm keeping it for an emergency. Uh, And she seems very down to earth. I imagine she might even uh, make time to listen if I did get in touch, but it wouldn't surprise me if she didn't because I'm just a lowly curate. Thank you very much. (laughs) I didn't realize it was a panto this morning. It was lovely. (laughs) But imagine it was the other way around. Imagine the Honourable Olivia Blake MP were to send me a voice note on WhatsApp with a text underneath saying, please listen, important information that is relevant to Forward Church. And then imagine that I responded, dear Olivia, sorry, 
No time to listen to your voice note. I've got to listen to another episode of my favorite podcast, The Rest is Politics. Maybe I'll get round to listening later. I hope it wasn't anything too political. Don't really understand politics anyway. At least not when you're talking about it. All the best, Rob. Wouldn't that be shocking? It certainly wouldn't be honoring the honorable MP for Hallam to not listen. And I'd be potentially depriving myself and us of some benefit, wouldn't I? It would be crazy, mad to ignore mail from such an important leader. Well, actually, of course, that made-up example is nothing. You see, for the last 20 years, there's been a, a real letter for me, given for my good and yours, from God Almighty himself, the eternal ruler over all ages, the one who was and is and is to come. A letter for the last 20 years of my Christian life for me, tucked into the back of my Bible... And I largely spent the first decade of those 20 years ignoring it. Isn't that shocking? Isn't that madness? If you're a Christian here today, then it's a letter that's tucked into the back of your Bible too, isn't it? Have you opened it? Have you read it? Pondered it? Acted on it? Now to some it appears that to read it would be mad. It seems like a mad letter. 666, the apocalypse, a Satan, lakes of fire, angels, demons. It's just source material for crackpots and conspiracy theorists, isn't it, Revelation? The endless supply uh, for religious fanatics obsessing with cracking the code of Revelation to pinpoint the exact date of Jesus' return. You'd be mad to read it and believe it, wouldn't you? Well, that's how it can seem. But I want to say the opposite is true. And I hope with the others who um, preach our way through it from up here to demonstrate to you over the course of this series that we'd be mad not to study this book, not to listen to it, because, well, above all, because it is a letter to us from our God. The purpose of today's passage is uh, really simple. Read your mail. It was sent to you by God. John wants to help us see why we should read this book by showing us who sent it to us. And the big application is all there in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written in it because the time is near. The picture in this verse is actually a typical scene from the first century of a, a letter being read aloud. Uh, blessed is the one who reads aloud. One person at the front of a public meeting reading the letter out to the addressees, the people it was written to. And the addressees are meant to hear it. But notice, not just hear it, what does the verse say? Take it to heart. John was writing about a time that was near, he says, a time that was nearly upon these people he's writing to. 
And so they needed this letter to pass through those coming times unscathed in their faith and worship. For now, we're only planning to study chapters 1 to 5. That means we're not going to consider which events in history, uh, which times chapter 6 to 22 relate to. Not for the time being. Maybe we'll return at some point and do the hard work to figure it out. But even in chapters 1 to 5, we shall see again and again that God has something to say to his people in the first century about the things that were going to happen to them then, in the present. You see, Revelation is given to his people in the first century as a present help for present trouble, not, as many treat it, as a code to be cracked about some far-off future. Oh, it talks about the coming day when Jesus will appear, but it was written to people to help them with their present. And precisely because it was written to real people for real present trouble back then, it is still relevant for us in our present today. We're going to find that our present uh, difficulties bear striking similarities to theirs. And so I hope that we will find also that the help and blessing offered to them is still powerful and urgent for us now. But again, that blessing will only be ours if we read it, if we hear it, if we take it to heart. So will you? Well, again, to help us, John wants to be crystal clear in the opening of this letter about who wrote it to us. Because fundamentally, that's what should motivate us to listen above all. Verses 1 to 2 and 4 to 8 just unpack for us that this is a letter sent from none other than our loving, triune, awe-inspiring, almighty, eternal, terrifying, tremendous God. Don't you want to listen to him? Here's the postmark, verses 1 to 2. This isn't actually the postmark on uh, Revelation, just in case you're wondering. This is a Chinese stamp um, from, I think, what's known as the Temple of Heaven, the imperial complex. I thought it was uh, not a bad uh, symbol. In fact, it's a terrible symbol, isn't it? Because probably the Temple of Heaven in in China is setting itself up as a replacement for God. But you get the point, don't you? Uh, The death of the letter is one of the saddest things about emails, isn't it? Uh, My grandpa loved uh, stamp collecting. I've inherited some amazing Chinese stamps from him. Not this one. This is from the internet. Um, And I love postmarks as well. I love looking to see where letters have come from when occasionally they do still get sent to me. Well, verses 1 to 2 are the postmark of this letter. And they're designed to leave us in no doubt about who this letter is from. Verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Here is a letter from Jesus Christ. But notice, even before that, it is given to him by God the Father to show his servants. God is leaving us in no doubt. It is God speaking to his church through this letter. So, when you see heaven's postmark, let that motivate you to read your mail. 
Now, although this letter is from God the Father and our Lord, Jesus Christ, do you see they've used trustworthy messengers to pass it on? So middle of verse 1, Jesus made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who, verse 2, testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. There's a chain of messengers here, isn't there? From God to Jesus, Jesus to his angel, the angel to John, and from John to us, the servants of Christ. If indeed you are his servant. Notice how after establishing that chain, verse 2 then doubles back to the big point. Did you see? This is a message from the heavenly witness, Jesus Christ. John is giving us an eyewitness account of what he saw, he says. John is testifying to everything he saw, but what he saw is the testimony of none other than heaven's great son, Jesus. So ultimately, what we are given, though mediated by an angel and an apostle, ultimately what we are given is what Jesus himself has seen to be true. This, then, is God's message to us, his perspective on the world, on history, on everything that we are going through as a church. One of the um, uh, cheekier members of the staff team said to me, you can't teach them that. That's just true of everything in the Bible. Well, yeah, it is true of every New Testament letter. Listen up, because God's speaking. But do you see that not every New Testament letter wears it on its sleeve like this? Here, God is laboring the point that this is from him. Okay, but why? Why would he do that? Well, perhaps because this letter sums up all that the Bible is saying. It's perhaps the last revelation given to us, the final piece of the canon written in A.D. 95 by the last living apostle. It's the crown of Scripture, the final piece of the biblical canon, God's final word. And so isn't it right then that he should emphasize that this last word is from him? Because by doing that, he reminds us that every other word is from him too. But perhaps also he emphasizes this is from him Precisely because he knows that this is hard to read, hard to understand. This book is going to be full of strange pictures, easy to dismiss as the ravings of a maniac, as that American leader Thomas Jefferson once did, even though, really annoyingly, he rejected it that way after a friend of his had written a commentary on Revelation so that he could understand it. How frustrating. Knowing this is from God should help us understand why everything in here is given in strange pictures. You see, look, if this is ultimately Jesus' eyewitness testimony, then of course it has to come to us in strange pictures. Do you think that our mortal, human, earth bound eyes can see exactly as the eternal one sees. Jesus, as he stands 
as the eternal God over all of history. He sees it all, all the ages before him in an instant. His sight takes in all the peoples, all the peoples of the earth in a moment, but without ever losing sight of every individual soul that belongs to him. Can you see as he sees? Of course you can't. But through the pictures in Revelation, we are given an otherworldly glimpse of the things that Jesus sees, things too wonderful to convey in mere human pictures. No, this is not the ravings of a maniac, this letter, but the sublime realities of a God whose perspective his church urgently needs to take hold of if our worship of him is to survive in this world with all the pressures arrayed against it. This letter bears heaven's postmark. So get reading. Look, I know it's not an easy book to read. I want to recommend a resource to you um, because I know it's hard also to uh, listen to sermons and the summer season is approaching, so you'll be going away occasionally and missing out on uh, different sermons. I don't blame you. Um, I'd be probably be going away too if I didn't have to preach every Sunday. Um, <laughs> Nancy Guthrie. I say that only because obviously the summer is now, isn't it? And it's only going to last six weeks. And then when summer comes, it'll be raining again. So you've got to make use of the, of the good weather. Anyway, there's a book called Blessed by Nancy Guthrie. My wife gave me this amazing stat that apparently if you say to a room, a mixed room, that a book is written by a woman, then the men won't buy it. So please, would you buy this for your male friends or indeed your husband if you're a woman? (laughs) Nancy Guthrie, Blessed. It is a brilliant book with some really clear principles for reading Revelation. And as I mentioned, we're only going to go to chapter 5, so if you're the kind of person who hates to leave a book unfinished, and I hope that's all of you, when it comes to a book written by God, then I hope that Nancy Guthrie will be able to take you all the way to the end. Let's move on to our final point. It is a slightly longer point. Worship heaven's author. Can we have the next slide? Worship heaven's author. Then read your mail. Once again, note that this prophecy comes to us as a letter. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from, well, from God the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, Jesus Christ. Do you know, all New Testament letters begin this way. A messenger who introduces himself and brings grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Only this letter opening is a little bit different. And the difference is really important. Did you see? What most letter openings say in seven words, Revelation takes five whole verses to say. Rather than just saying, this is from God the Father and Jesus Christ, we get an extended description of God the Father and Jesus Christ. And in the middle of it all, verse 6, John breaks out in worship of this God. The end of verse 6, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Worship this God. 
And then you will want to read what he has to say. This kind of worship in words is known as a doxology. And normally doxologies come at the end of New Testament letters. Not always, but almost always. And the fact that it is front-loaded here keys us into the big idea of the whole letter, I would suggest. Through this letter, God wants to help us worship him and see how glorious he is and give him the glory and glory in him. Again and again, these chapters will move us to worship God in awe and love and wonder, felt worship. Our hearts moved. And worshipping him, we will want to hear what he has to say. That is the first act of worship, you know. Actually listening to him. If you love and worship him, why wouldn't you listen to him? Well, I wonder, do you worship him? If uh, listening... It can lead to worship. Actually, whether you were listening in the first place is a test of whether there's any worship, isn't it? Well, John helps us by reminding us how worthy of worship our God is. Middle of verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. We see it again at the end, don't we? Verse 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Our God is the eternal, unchanging one, who was and is and is to come. He is, verse 8, the Alpha and Omega. You know, those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. We might say God is the A, And the Z. Uh, Through Sesame Street, I've been conditioned to say A and Z, which is just blasphemous, isn't it? He's the A and the Z. He's the beginning, and he is the end. You can see the Alpha and the Omega up there on the screen. The Alpha's obvious. The W-looking thing is the Omega. It became a massive part of Christian symbolism. This is from a Roman catacomb uh, from the first few centuries of uh, Christian religion. Why Alpha and Omega? Well, because he's the beginning. He's our uncreated creator. There's nothing before him. He simply is. But everything follows from him. He created it all by his power. From every atom to every galaxy. From every big political beast to every small baby, every charis. He is the origin of all, the living God who gives life to all. He is the Alpha. And he is the Omega. Because all things made by him are made for him. He is the goal and destiny of all creation. All things were made to display his glory. And we who can understand him, even if just a little, were made to glory in him. It is our highest goal and the greatest good he has to offer us. He offers us himself. 
that we might know him and enjoy him forever. He is the Omega. Why wouldn't we listen to the one by whom and for whom we exist? The G7 are meeting at the moment, aren't they? It's um, interesting. You know, I find myself tempted to be more interested in the proclamations of the G7 leaders than I am in what God has to say to me. Others of you, of course, might be more cynical. You've long since given up listening to proclamations by any leader, divine or human. You're just so disappointed in them. Unlike me, who's tempted to replace God's proclamation to me by the proclamation of humans, you just want to lump God with the G7, a kind of G8, 8th G, and just bin it all and do life on your own. But whether you're tempted to replace him or lump him together with other human leaders and reject him, can't you see that the the thing we all need is the same, isn't it? We need to worship this God alone and listen to him. Not that I'm saying don't listen to the proclamations of the G7. I'm not against John Stott's famous saying that we must keep the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other because this God wants to address real people in a real world going through real things. We must work hard to understand how his word to us actually matters to the things that are happening in front of us today. But my problem is not forgetting to engage with the world around me. My problem is not listening to the God of heaven who stands over this world as its king. And you know, that problem is not new. This idea or phrase, I am the Alpha and the Omega, or the first and the last, it actually comes from Isaiah. Isaiah 40 to 55. You see, eight centuries before the first century when John wrote, the prophet Isaiah predicted that one day Israel would be taken to Babylon in exile. It would be a catastrophic event for them as a nation. We've actually been learning about it in Nehemiah, haven't we, as we've seen them come back from the exile and try to rebuild in the aftermath of the exile. And of course, during the exile, who seemed to be in charge? Well, the nations seemed in charge. Foreign kings and their foreign gods ruled over Israel. Nehemiah was the de facto leader of Israel, we saw, during the return from exile. But we also saw that he was the servant of King Artaxerxes, King of Babylon, King of Persia. And during this period, Israel was sorely tempted to listen to the royal decrees of these foreign kings and their foreign gods instead of carrying on listening to their own God. You see, after all, didn't Israel's God look weak? Hardly the almighty, as he claims to be here in verse 8. Sometimes they were even tempted to despise this God, their God, as just another unloving, incapable, failed leader. You can see that again and again in Isaiah 40 to 55. Have you forgotten us? And into that temptation to stop worshipping their God, God reminded Israel that he alone was the first and the last. Here's a quote from Isaiah 44 up on your screens. Thus says the Lord, 
the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And first and last, it's not exactly the same as Alpha and Omega, is it? But when we get to the end of Revelation, John repeats the idea. And he ties Alpha and Omega with an exact quote from Isaiah 40 to 55. Revelation 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. But does this claim stand up to scrutiny? I mean, zoom forward eight centuries to John's day, and has God at last come good on this claim to be the king of history? No! Caesar ruled supreme in John's day. The Roman emperor Domitian claimed to be Lord and God in the first century. Zoom forward another 12 centuries to our day, and perhaps human beings have become a little bit humbler. We don't claim to be Lord and God anymore, do we, if we uh, take political rule? I'd be quite surprised if Olivia Blake um, came to church and said, worship me. But I guess, along with not thinking humans are divine rulers, we, we've also binned our own divine ruler as a divine ruler as well, haven't we? Surely he's not really in charge. Given the chaos of our world, how could he claim to be? Well, do you know, in Isaiah's day, the key piece of evidence God offered his people to prove his claim to be the almighty ruler of history was that one day he himself would enter into history to save his people and bring them back to him. Can we go back a slide, actually? Between the Alpha and the Omega are some other letters there. Cairo. Do you know what they stand for? Christ. It is Christ's coming into the world that is the key evidence that this claim is real and true. And what Isaiah prophesied to, John witnessed and now passes on to us. Verse 5. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, that is, he The word of God enters into the world of God in the flesh to speak to us of the reality of God's existence. The verse goes on. He is the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, because he has power over life and death, over all kings. Because though he took on humanity, he relinquished none of his divine royalty. He will rule forever over all rulers, from Artaxerxes to Caesar to Charles and Rishi, and whoever comes next is the Alpha and the Omega. His kingdom will have no end. Verse 5. Do you see what makes this God-man so worthy of worship? As verse 5 goes on, not just that he's powerful over death and all other powers, but that for all his majesty, he also loves us. Verse 5, to him who loves us. Now that's a bit weird, isn't it? How can he love us when we so fail to love him? 
I mean, I treat his letter the way that Dan treated Bethan's. Was that an act of love? Do I demonstrate love for him? Can he love me? Well, yes, verse 5 goes on. He knows that I don't love him, but he has come to pay the penalty for that. He has freed me from my sins by his blood. Yes, he loves us, despite our lack of love for him. But of course, salvation is always from and for. We're not just freed from sins, we're freed for something too. Verse 6, and he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. Freed from sin to come back to God the Father, our Omega, the goal of our existence the one we are called to glory in and worship forever. And so John breaks out in worship, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Everyone's all a chatter at the G7, aren't they, about um, a different leader. Who's the man of the moment? Thank you, yeah, that's right. Zelensky. And he's a pretty amazing leader, isn't he? His bravery, his strength, his power, his love for his nation. I think they're all unquestionable by any fair observer. But in not one of these departments, not one of them, can he even come close to the king who has defeated death. Could you imagine if Zelensky could do that for his soldiers? Zelensky hasn't died for his people. Maybe he's willing. But even if he did, he would be dying as a beloved leader. This leader dies for the people who love him not. Find me love like that. No, Zelensky is not even a patch on our king. And so why am I more excited about hearing what Zelensky has to say to me? It's crazy, isn't it? Why did the G7 pay no attention to the G8? Well, do you know, they will pay attention one day because of verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Do you know, our king will have the last word when he comes to judge all the peoples and to destroy those who have opposed his rule. The peoples will mourn. Just as surely as his own people will rejoice on that day when we see the Omega. So won't we hang on his words today, knowing that he will have the last word in history? Over the course of this series, beginning next week, we're going to consider how the pressure has always been on God's people to sideline their God, to grow cool in our worship, and even to give up on him completely, to denounce him. But God is not willing to let go of us so easily. He writes to help us hold on to him in worship. 
Let's then give the last word to God himself. Did you notice he actually takes the last word in this passage for himself? It's like he kind of grabs the mic from John in verse 8. Because he wants to speak to us directly. Are you listening? Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Father, help us to listen to you. Help us to look at Christ and to see that this, your claim to be God, is true and beyond doubt. Help us to know your love, your awesome power, your eternity, your rule, your goodness, your terrifying glory, and help us to tremble before your word. Amen.